This is an ABC podcast. Should it bend? Will it tell you if you're having a car accident or a heart attack? Yes, this week on Download This Show, when a big mobile phone manufacturer releases a a new phone, just like Apple did this week with the iPhone 14, have we reached the limit of what we can expect when it comes to true boundary-leaping innovations? Is it just going to be tiny changes from here on out? Also on the show, if you could redesign MyGov from scratch, what would you change? Plus, the US has banned major tech companies from doing one thing in China for the next 10 years. What is it? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Manal Asharif from the Tech for Evil podcast and cybersecurity expert, joining me in studio. Welcome back. Hey, Mark. Well, thank you for having me again. <laughs> the pleasure is entirely mine. And joining us from his home, reporter with The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Welcome back. Good to be with you again. Does it matter where your data lives? Uh, this is an interesting conversation. I can already see Manal being like, yes, yes, it matters. Uh, you may not realise this, but uh, your data, all of your personal information that you sign up to when you give your information over to various different online services, it goes into servers. But where are those servers? Some of them are here in Australia. Some of them aren't. There is a bit of a debate going on at the moment uh, as to whether or not the data that you put up on the internet, you hand over to people, should stay in Australia. Talk to me about this story. What's currently being debated, Josh? Uh, yeah, so essentially it's a, it's a option that the Home Affairs Department has put forward, essentially saying, you know, we, we think that there's a, an argument to be made that much more data should be held within Australia for, if it is relative to Australians themselves. Um, this is already the case for things like your My Health Record data. And, and I think I vaguely recall when, when we were all uh, downloading the COVID Safe app as well. Uh, rest in peace. Um, I shouldn't, there was I a shouldn't requirement automatically for... laugh when you say the COVID Safe app. I shouldn't decide. Sorry, carry on. Just rest in peace, rest in peace. Um, that there was a requirement for that data to be held in Australia. And this is just sort of, I guess, the, the next iteration. They're wanting to see how much data they can effectively keep on shore. And um, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting one. I, I don't know what their chances are. Is, you know, We can see that the tech companies aren't really happy about it because they are global businesses and they do have mm-hmm. wanting to be able to, to minimise their costs and, and keep data where it's cheapest for them and, and most ideal for them. Manal, if you nod any more furiously, I think you might sprain something. Why does it matter so much to you that data stays on on shore. It's something called data sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the 5i, including US, UK, they will not allow their government data, their citizens' data to reside anywhere but onshore. They don't allow it to be transmitted to overseas. So it's a data sovereignty first, localizing your data. Uh, So the home affairs are not being different than those com- countries, including countries like my country, Saudi Arabia. They don't allow their sensitive data and government data to be overseas. China doesn't allow that. So why Australia being talked out of it and, and using, like, I, I'm just going to read from the submission. Um, there were 18 submissions that Home Affairs are keeping confidential. But one of them is from the Tech Council of Australia. And all of us know the Tech Council of Australia is just being all the money they receive and the funding comes from tech companies. So they will not talk on behalf of the citizens. They will talk on behalf of businesses. They are against it because they say it's, as Josh mentioned, it's going to be 
It's actually um, it's, um, a security risk, and I disagree with that. And also it's the cost of business. And if there are any interruptions, whatever, um, um, let's say you, you lost your data, you don't have a backup fast enough for you to get your data. Actually, for me, with the geopolitical unrest in the world today, government should keep their citizens' data locally because that, when you move it overseas, and if anything happened, a war in, uh, uh, erupted in Europe or whatever, you don't have access to that. If you, the internet, the word internet shut down in those countries or interruption, you don't have access to your data. Your citizens, how are you going to run your, your government? Is there an argument, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a second, is there an argument for a safety that comes with spreading where data, and I'm talking about this in aggregate, right, because obviously we're, it comes down to like individual choices for individual uh, departments and companies and whatnot, but is there an argument for safety in spreading where information is stored around the world? Is there, is there some argument to that? Yes, so the safety... So, of course, the backup, if you want to have a backup and anything happen. But I can't believe, like, the whole country will go offline and you're going to lose all your data centers. I mean, the world does feel slightly apocalyptic at times. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes it is. <laughs> but there is something Saudi Arabia did, which is the private cloud for government, where you actually build your own cloud locally. And you still are part of the cloud because if you don't move to the cloud today, you will be replaced. So government's part of the digital transformation is really moving to the cloud. But you can build something called government cloud, community cloud, private cloud that you own. Um, and it functions as a cloud because it's more efficient uh, when providing you with, um, with the digital infrastructure, supporting your digital infrastructure. I suppose there's a distinction to be made here, Josh, between uh, government data and data held on sort of commercial operators. So, you know, you mentioned, so for example, iCloud or, you know, data held by Google and things like that. I mean, already uh, under sort of Commonwealth laws, uh, the government's prevented from storing personal sensitive data from things like my health record overseas. Josh, I mean, should it matter the kind of data we're talking about if it's it's the data that is, you know, associated with, uh, I don't know, like a, a Google account? I think it's anything sort of personally identifiable that you should probably be concerned about. I mean, I understand, I guess, the the privacy logic of of why we want to do this and, and the security logic behind why Home Affairs would put this place. But I can't help but put my cynical goggles on and basically say they want this data onshore so they can get better access to it in case, you know, we've seen so many national security laws passed in the past few years. We know that... Um, the mutual assistance frameworks that we've got in place with countries like the United States and, and, and other countries like that, it does take a long time for law enforcement to get access to those data that's held by Facebook and Google and things like that. Um, I can't see, you know, if the data is held in Australia that they'll try to force these companies to make it much easier for them to access that data. Um, so that that's like, that, when I see Home Affairs saying this, that that's the first thing that comes to <laughs> mind. That's sort of the downside to that. Um, but I think, you know, if, if they are legitimately talking about improving Australians' privacy and, and security and protecting Australian data. I think that that's a good thing. But I don't know. I've, just, I've seen so many news stories about, you know, worrying about TikTok, restoring people's data in China, and, and, and obviously all the national security laws. It just makes me very, very cynical when Home Affairs suggests this. So, okay, so the way, the, the way it plays out, on the one hand, there's a, there's a security fear of storing personal data overseas. And then on the other hand, there's a privacy fear of storing personal data in Australia where it is p- considered to be more accessible or potentially more accessible by Australian law enforcement. Am I, am I getting that right, Josh? Yeah, I think that's probably the, the, um, the weird juxtaposition. Like we're, we're constantly 
uh, told by Home Affairs that you know they they can't get access to the data, they can't get access to the data that they want. Um, we've had all these national security laws passed, and and you know I just see that they view privacy as a much lower priority for them than the security of Australian data. Right. So Manal, for you, of those two options, which one of them irks you more? Data is the new oil. Who owns data and can analyze it and make sense out of it owns the future. So the more they collect this amount of data from all over the the world, sitting there on their clouds in the US offshore, and God knows where where else they they have their clouds, I'm against having my citizens' data sitting somewhere else. And and believe me, like I speak, I breathe and 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 speak all all the time about security, privacy, and human rights. But I still very. Uh, I'm very. Um, what's the word uh, when you don't believe someone and take it with a grain of salt? With the tech companies, tech companies they just care about owning this data. They're going to make a lot of money out of it, and they care about having a business that's easy to run without the extra cost of building of localizing data. You are listening to Download This Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Manal Al-Sharif from the Tech for Evil podcast, cybersecurity expert, and Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Mark Fennell is my name. And staying on the topic of international borders and technology, uh, interesting story out of the US this week. Uh, the US has barred advanced tech firms from building Chinese factories, factories in China for 10 years, Manal. Why? Yeah, so it's called the Semiconductor Bill. And the semiconductor bill, uh, the guidelines were part of a 50 billion plan aimed to building the local semiconductor industry. You know, after the pandemic, we had a shortage in semiconductors. And it's this concentration. It's uh, in three countries. The people who make it are Taiwan, South Korea. And while the whole world was suffering from shortage in semiconductor, there was a soar in semiconductor in China. What exactly are semiconductors? How do, like, what do they end up being useful for? So semiconductors are a very important part in in your your electronics. You can use it in your phone. You can use, you can have a phone without your semiconductors that you use to build the processor of your phone. You need it in your, in your cars. Any smart device would need that. So it is Without that, you can't build electronics. So 75% of the semiconductor market are in these two countries, Taiwan um, and, and South Korea. So for me, this is a good um, a futuristic move from the U.S. Mm. So, okay, so Josh, is this about, I, I guess it's, this is about a few things. This is about shifting the, the center of gravity. We know that semiconductors are an essential part of, of a lot of hardware, and it's about sort of shifting the center of gravity away from, from China, which, of course, is the hub of so much manufacturing and technology and shifting it away from them so the, the I guess the power of negotiation is doesn't lie so so heavily on on the Chinese side is, is that an inter- is that a valid interpretation of the events yeah so I think it's probably a couple of things you know globalization was has been very very good for China in terms of, of um, bringing a lot of people out of poverty and but now we're at the stage where I think you know, China did actually call it a bit of a Cold War mentality, and I think that's not actually far off what it's like. They're, it's basically recognizing that uh, chips are a, a vital part of, of modern life, and it does help if they're manufactured locally, and it's much more secure for these companies if they do so. I guess the interesting thing about it is it's not like they're... <laughs> It's not like the US tried to move chip manufacturing to the US because typically speaking, what you do, you know, if you, if you want to sell, you know, in in years past, if, if you want to kind of sell 
the, the idea politically is you'd move manufacturing back on shore, but they, they didn't try that. They just, they just shifted it to more, I guess, from a US political perspective, more palatable countries than now. Yeah, but they also, the US government did something interesting. They banned uh, AI chip makers, American AI chip makers, and this is made in the US. They banned them from exporting the AI chips to China, uh, companies like AMD. That's very interesting. So it's not only not investing in building the new technology or new factories in China. And by the way, it takes around two years to build a new semiconductor factory. So that would not, that's not a magic uh, bill, pill they will take and it will fix everything. Or a magic bill, actually. It is mm. a bill. <laughs> but it's, um, I, I think it's just China is a country that doesn't look to the next quarter and how much you're going to make money for your shareholders. They look at a strategic the next 100 years. They really understand the importance of owning. Um, um, so that's why the, uh, all the tension around Taiwan now, because Taiwan is the, the first, they're known to produce most of the world's semiconductors. So imagine taking hold of that or control of that. This is it. You control the manufacturing of a lot of smart devices around the world. Semiconductors, you can use it even in, in, in medical devices. Like there's no end where you use semiconductors. That your electronics can't be built without it. And that's built in Taiwan and South Korea and China. 75%, as I mentioned. Is this actually going to make much difference to China? I mean, I know the US is obviously a big market in terms of where hardware ends up, Josh, but a bill like this, is it actually going to have that much of a dent on, on China's economy realistically? I mean, the trade war was already happening with China and we haven't really seen much of an impact both in terms of what the US done and other countries like Australia has done. It's just sort of um, annoyed them slightly a bit. Um, it's, it's, I think it's really still too early to say what it will have, have an impact on. China tends to sort of play down what these things actually mean in practice and um, it's often hard for us to see from the outside what impact it is having. Well, speaking of uh, all the different electronics that semiconductors end up in, uh, this week Apple unveiled their iPhone 14. Can you believe we've hit 14? Uh, look, I'm not necessarily interested in promoting Apple, but I am oddly curious if there is anything within it that is worth noting. Uh, Josh, I've, I gather you've seen all the headlines and all the shiny, shiny videos. Is there anything genuinely new or interesting about the iPhone 14? There's a couple of things. I mean, it's not a huge leap from the iPhone 13, but I think... Some of the interesting things are in terms of um, you'll be able to, if you're not in a phone in an area with mobile phone coverage, you'll be able to uh, use satellite for emergencies. So that's something new, and it takes it um, particularly around Australia when you're in regional places that just don't have mobile coverage, and that's a huge problem in this country because we're such a large mass of continent and very few people in it. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. I think the other things in terms of you just got this sort of usual upgrade to a better camera, a better processor. You've got the always on lock screen. So you, like it doesn't shut off if you don't want it. Yeah, the, the notch at the top is no more. You've got the dynamic island, which sounds like a really good uh, indie band name, I think, to me. <laughs> what is the di- I've, I've read so many headlines about the dynamic island and it's yet to be explained to me. What, what is a dynamic island? And can I holiday there? So you know that little um, black part of the top of your screen where the, the, the camera is and you, and you just can't sort of, you don't get that part of the screen on your phone? Oh, yeah, yeah, at the top, right. 
Right. So the at the top where the little speaker is and there's a little hole. Yeah, sorry, I literally look at my phone as we speak. Uh, yeah, got it. Yeah. So now that's called the dynamic island because it's slightly wider and they've got uh, the ability to see sort of, you know, what you're playing and things up there as well. So it is changing a little bit, but um, yeah, they've, they've, that's one thing they've gotten, <laughs> gotten rid of or changed, I guess. Uh, Manal, out of, uh, out of the iPhone 14, is there anything that stood out as being as, as being noteworthy? Oh, yeah. it's done that. I, I just bought my iPhone 13. <laughs> Mate, you've got to time these things better. You should know when these announcements are coming out. And you lose, like, you could have bought it way cheaper, you know? Uh, just so this isn't a gigantic free kick for good old Apple, uh, the world's most valuable company, or at least it was until quite recently. What didn't they announce about the iPhone that they should have, Josh? Is there something that they should have bloody changed about that that phone that 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 would have been necessary? I want to see Apple try and do a folding phone. I mean, I was a little bit cynical when Samsung initially started doing them, um, but I think they've come a long way now, and I'm actually kind of a little bit sold on them now. So I would like to see them at least attempt it. I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't with this announcement. Um, at least look at doing a folding screen. Do you do you have a foldy phone? No, I'm I'm an iOS person, so I I have all the Apple offerings. Okay, so of the people that you you know with a foldy phone, here's my question: What is it actually useful for? <laughs> like, I I get the novelty. Of, I do. I really do. It looks fun, but like, what is it useful for? <laughs> so I think it's for a couple of things. It's it takes up less space in your pocket. Um, sure. And also, if you get if you've got the fold out screen, it does mean that you can sort of, uh, I guess, do multiple things across. Like you can drag and drop from one window to another and things like that. And Apple, like iOS, is getting a little bit better in terms of being able to do. You can have multiple things on the screen at once. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's still not quite there in terms of the hardware. So maybe I don't know why they went. That maybe they didn't really. They want to wait and see that. I know, Mark. That I sure. wanted them to bring back the headphone jack. And <laughs> I hate using Bluetooth. And oh yeah, it that's right. So they lost the good old-fashioned headphone yeah, jack, didn't they? So that's been, that's long gone. That's not coming back, mate. No. <laughs> so I think this might be the last phone that doesn't have USB-C in it because I know that the like uh, in Europe, I mean, lightning, at right? forcing. You, you mean the, la- the last? Oh, they, oh yeah, the last, the last phone one with, doesn't, with doesn't have it. Yeah, it doesn't have lightning. Yeah, it doesn't have uh, USB-C um, because they, I think in Europe, they're looking to force uh, Apple to, to at least offer it. Oh, they already forced them. They already released that law. It's yeah, law yeah, now, but I don't, think, I don't so, think they've actually implemented it on the new phones yet. So I think that's probably the next stage. So just to explain, if you happen to be um, listening to this on, a, on an iPhone, um, the lightning connector is the thing that you're connected to right now, probably. Um, that will most likely, because of Europe's new laws that will be replaced with a, a wire, which is the USB-C wire, because uh, Europe has decided that it's ridiculous that we have so many different charging wires. So this will, you're right, this will probably be the last generation that is charged with, with lightning, RIP lightning. I think, I think they'll remove the whole USB-C and they will say, you need to use wireless charging now. Hit in your face, Europe. We're not going to put USB-C. <laughs> well, I mean... They, or they, yeah, they might just do wireless completely yeah, or they'll just do um, wireless. have a connector. Okay, so here's my... Okay, uh, this is... Charging a wireless phone when your phone is flat. Has anyone ever found that that's really like like properly properly flat? Has anyone ever found that hard? Because yeah, I, I use wireless. Time, yeah, because yeah. I I've <laughs> I'm I let my phone run flat all the time because I'm not good at life. Um, it seems to struggle with that. Did Josh? Do you ever find that? I am one of those people that gets very paranoid and can't let my phone get below like 40%. So I have not Are experienced that. Are you seeking professional that. help with this problem? <laughs> and I also keep my inbox at zero. So uh, yeah, no, it's definitely a problem. Um, I don't know. I, I only use the uh, wireless one when I'm on my work laptop and it's generally, it's fine. Um, it's, it's no issue at all. I think the interesting thing is so the, the argument that Apple's constantly made around this is that 
uh, USB-C is less secure than the, the Lightning and, and a lot of these sorts of arguments that I don't particularly buy, but um, we'll see how that goes. And, and basically once Europe kind of forces their hand on these things, they tend to make it available to everyone else. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if we get it um, for the next round as well. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Manal Asharif, uh, cybersecurity expert and from the Tech for Evil podcast, Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Mark Finnell is my name. And there is no scarier email to receive than this. You have a new message from MyGov. That, every time I get that email, I don't know what it is. It just fills me with terror. But what if... They redesigned MyGov, so it wasn't terrifying. What if they redesigned it so it was good? That is on the cards. Uh, The brand new federal government has uh, made its first steps towards potentially overhauling MyGov. But what could they do? Like, what are the what's the potential? What what could they do to MyGov that makes it would make it not an awful, terrifying service? That is what we are here to discuss today. Josh, I'm going to start with you. Now, like, let's be honest, the, the, the instantaneous fear I have with MyGov is usually because, I don't know, don't pay my taxes on time. What would you change about MyGov as, as, a, as a service, starting up first for you? I think just sort of simplifying it, making it, I mean, the, the changes that they've announced do go a long way in terms of just making it obvious. So like, this is where I need to go and this is where I need to, to do this activity. I think it's a lot better because a lot of the times you go there and then you just like, if you want to go to the ATO, then you get... Uh, push through to another website, which does log you in automatically, but it's it's a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> but it's it's I think like making that connectivity and much more seamless and making it feel like a like a single experience. And I think that that's basically what they're aiming to do. They want it to feel like you are when you go to the site. Basically, everything every sort of federal government service that you need to interact with will be available there, and and you you can click straight away and get yeah, we to call where this you're going. single signed on. And most mm. digital transformation um, in companies, because they have so many applications and it's so difficult for people because you need to create an account on each one. And unfortunately, this is the current experience with MyGov, that you need to create your Centrelink account separately from ATO and then you link them. It should be just one identity. Mm. You create one identity and it gives you access to these services instead of creating different identity and then linking it to MyGov. I think that's called a single sign-on and that should be actually part of the digital transformation or part of revamping or recreating or updating, whatever you call it, uh, MyGov. So the Medicare tax office, Centrelink, I mean, one of the, I guess one of the biggest issues, the complicated things about MyGov is, is the fact that it, it is, it's, a, it's primarily a, a federal sort of uh, portal. And a lot of the things that I, I was thinking about, a lot of things I would fold into it are state. They're things like uh, the RTA and, and, and things like that, things that, that would exist in, in your various different states and territory. But are there functionalities that you think, you know, if you could wave a magic gazillion dollar wand, Manal, what would you like MyGov to be able to do that it can't do currently? I think other than the single sign-on, I just want to lodge my taxes without using tax consultant. It should be more simplified. The whole idea of digitizing uh, the government uh, services is make it simple and easy. Like we still, I always say, I still do it manually, but in a digital way. Mm. Like, as you mentioned, when you get the notification, why don't you just tell me in the notification what the message is about? Why I have to go and log in to read that? Is that sensitive? I don't think so. It's like the government, you know what it is? It's like the government equivalent of uh, getting a text from somebody saying, we need to talk. 
or someone <laughs> followed you on Twitter or something. Yeah, and you can't see who followed you. Or someone pr- f- viewed your profile on LinkedIn. A very useless message. Thank you, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's but, like... But Mark, I, I think from a cybersecurity and privacy perspective, my concern when I go to my gov, they use third-party trackers. And those third-party trackers from Adobe, from Google, and even YouTube ad, uh, they give me YouTube ad ID. And why my gov allow third party to collect uh, people here, citizens in Australia data, send it to them for analytics, is still being sent to third party. And that's for me, I, by the way, New South Wales government, the voting website, when people were going to vote, their website was using trackers, including Facebook trackers. So for me, like, why would my gov use these trackers? Build your own analytics. Don't allow the send of user data especially that Google Analytics collects so much information about you and they share with the admin, which is the government who runs the website, they share only a few things with them. All the other data is kept there, the tracks. Oh, uh, okay. So so um, when you go to a website, uh, often they will sort of Adobe, Adobe, Google will often have a kind of tracking services which will give you give the owner of that website an understanding of where you as a user will go. Either they, they really wanted to click on, you know, the RTA and pay all their fines, like just so they understand that. So they're, so, but, but that they're using a third-party company, Adobe or Google, to, to do that service but, for but them. But the problem with that is the cross-site tracking. That means that before I visited MyGov, I was on my account, I was on my Twitter, I was buying something here or there. So they collect all their data, these data and they know that, hey, Australian, gov- Australian citizen accessing these services on MyGov. That's my problem also. All the data is collected mm. around you from other websites. And then why MyGov, if you go to European Parliament, they don't allow any trackers, any third-party trackers on their website. And we should not allow third-party trackers on government websites, voting websites. That's one important change I would do. The other one, Mark, mm-hmm. I would actually hire, and uh, there are, I've met a lot of tech leaders in Australia. They're capable of building or leading the digital transformation. In Australia, for some reason, they outsource that to management consulting companies. So the digital transformation being outsourced to companies like Deloitte, IBM, whatever, Accenture. Mm. And that, they don't own the project. They just, it's for them, it's very transactional. While they need to bring a leader who leads a digital transformation, build their team, build their program and run it, and could use those companies as advisors, but not build it for the government. And and for me, that what creates all the, you know, iteration, all the instability, all the changes and, and the headache, because you keep changing your contractor who's building this for you instead of taking ownership of that. Mm. And that's my, the other thing, which is the big picture of changing about my gov or the, talking about the digital transformation. But good note, according to the United Nations, Australia ranks fifth out of 193 countries for e-governance. And that's behind Denmark, Korea, Estonia and Finland. For me, that's good. That's so not bad. Maybe, maybe my gov isn't as bad as we think it is. No, it's not as bad as. Uh, we think. Josh, for you, just coming back to the, that question, what would you change about my gov that, that hasn't already been changed in this in this new round of changes? Uh, I think it, a lot of the issues that I have with it tend to be around accessibility more than anything else. I think that if you're going to make something like my gov the first port of call for people on Centrelink or any sort of welfare payments, you have to make it as easy as possible for them to access it, make it compatible with as many devices as possible. I know a lot of issues that people are raising about uh, access to MyGov is is compatibility around older phones in terms of the app access, things like that. Um, I saw someone had emailed me recently about saying that they didn't like that 
uh, two-factor two authentication on that um, required them to have a mobile phone because they didn't have a mobile phone. Um, and so that made it difficult for them to actually access it. Just essentially things like that. You know, if we're going to push everyone into this one portal, which which for a lot, a lot of people like us is not a huge impost, but for people who maybe are not as well equipped on technology or don't have access to decent technology, it is, it is a, a much more difficult task for them. All right, we are out of time. Manal Asharif, cybersecurity expert and from the Tech for Evil podcast. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Mark, for having me. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian. Thanks for joining us on the program. It was great to be back. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.